Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11 and reading down to verse 28, says this. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause he is the mediator of the new covenant, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the, entereth into the holy place every year, every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That will conclude our reading this morning. Um, we may look one other place for one verse that uh, is in reference to these scriptures, and that also talk about what we'll be doing this morning. That's in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. Verse 28 says this, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. The title of our message this morning is A Better Covenant. A Better Covenant. I'm always somewhat reluctant to begin to preach messages like this because um, to the non-Bible reader, you hear words that are well above uh, any of our pay grades, testament, covenant, um, sometimes, you know, it says a testator here, 
redemption of transgressions. Um, and that just seems like a web of religious gobbledygook, right? And uh, hard to make sense of those things. Um, and so sometimes I hesitate. But at the same time, as we begin to explore the Old Testament, and the book of Hebrews begins to shed light on all that religious talk, um, it becomes very rich. It becomes very heart-stirring to recognize the implications of what he's talking about here and that this plan that Jesus fulfilled was not one that God threw together at the last minute, was not one that, um, well, it has richness to it. And you pray today that I can try to bring out some of these things. This morning, what sets before me and before you is an ordinance. And we intend here in just a little bit for the members of this church to partake in this ordinance. We know in the scriptures that there are two that are commanded to us. The first one being baptism. And the second one being periodically, as much as the church determines that it is expedient and appropriate, that we would also partake in the Lord's Supper. That's what Jesus commanded us. And so that's what we're trying to do in obeying Him. Uh, But this is a, and I'll use this term loosely, a ritual of sorts. A tradition of sorts that has been handed down since the night of Jesus' arrest, the day before His crucifixion, and has been practiced now for almost 2,000 years. That we have been ongoing in this. And this symbol of what we're doing today, we don't believe this morning that this bread, as some have taught in the past, actually become in our mouths the flesh of Christ. Nor do we believe that this wine becomes the blood of Christ, that it actually has some supernatural power. But rather what we look to and what we denote by partaking in this is the coming of a new era. That there was an old era that we can read about and the actual appropriate terms that we would use, uh, we refer often to the Old Testament and the New Testament, but that word testament just means a covenant. And so we could rightly say that you can read the first 40 or so books of the Bible and that is the Old Covenant. And then we read the New and it's the New Covenant. And Jesus told them as he was about to observe this Lord's Supper that he was about to ratify with his own blood a new covenant, a new way of life, a new way of worship that was going to be begin at his death and resurrection and would continue until the end of the world. And so the writer here is writing to people who have great familiarity with the old covenant. And they are in a sense stuck between desiring still in their tradition to obey the things of the old covenant, the old way of worship, but also knowing that something had changed in the coming and the death and sacrifice of Christ, but not being able to clearly ascertain what they're to do. And so the writer here is attempting to show us that the old covenant has been done away with because Jesus Christ has completely fulfilled that old covenant and have paved a new and living way of worshiping God. He 
tells us here and he references very often. And you can go through the Old Testament and we learn about some of the conditions or the terms of the Old Covenant. And this is not going to be exhaustive this morning, so I'm certain that there are some details that I will leave out. Nonetheless, we're going to attempt this morning to begin with to establish some terms of the Old Covenant. All that means in in simple forms is that there is an agreement between God and man, that's what a covenant is, and that there are certain terms that must be carried out by man before God. We learn in the Old Testament that, and we learned just earlier in this chapter, as well as the chapter before, that God had given an instruction to his man Moses that after they had come out of the uh, Egyptian bondage and they had uh, come out and, and desired to begin to form their own nation whereby they could worship him, God gave them to, some instructions on how they were to worship. One of those instructions was that they were to build a tabernacle. Now, to be as brief as I can this morning with the description of this, I want you to imagine in your mind a place where it's about 150 feet wide, and, or excuse me, long, and 75 feet wide, and all around it has these curtains. That's at least how I imagine it in my mind, or description of today. It had all these curtains surrounding all the way around that 150 foot by 70 foot uh, um, area. Now, no tribe was to be within 2,000 cubits of that tabernacle. So I want you to imagine in your mind a cubit is about 18 inches. So we're saying about 3,000 feet in every direction. So what would that be? About 10 football fields. You were to stay away from this tabernacle. The only people that could live near it was one tribe, and they were the people that were responsible for the upkeep of the tabernacle, and that was the Levitical tribe, the tribe of Levi. God, in the book of Numbers, gave some clear instructions. He said, I want to the east, directly to the east. There's going to be three tribes that are going to dwell there. Directly to the south, there are going to be three tribes there. Directly to the west, three tribes. And directly to the north, there will be three tribes. And in the middle of this will be this place called the tabernacle. Now within that 75 foot by 150 foot area, you could come into this area. The priest could. And you would see an altar of sorts. Now this altar is not like something we have, like a pew, but it was an exalted place, like a table. And that's where they would conduct the sacrifices whereby they would offer to God. Within that, there was another tent of sorts. And if you walked into this tent, now it wasn't a tent like we think of. I think of one that's kind of an A-frame. This was a tent that kind of looked like a block building of sorts. And you would walk in there, and when you walked in, there was a place called the holy place. In this, in this particular one, there's only two Rooms. The first one is the holy place. And then there's this large curtain that separates the holy place from the next place, which is called the holy of holies. And the place called the holy of holies was a little box overlaid with gold. Inside it, it had the Ten Commandments. It had Aaron's 
rod. It had some things inside of this, but it was the place where God's presence dwelt with Israel. And what would happen is, occasionally, the priest would come into the holy place, so this first room, and they would offer sacrifices to God for the sins of the people. But once a year, there was one person who could go behind this veil, behind this curtain, and they would go into the very presence of God himself and offer up sacrifices both to purify himself as the one sinful person standing in the presence of God that we know as Moses approached the burning bush that God said, take your shoes from off your feet for the place where on thou standest is holy ground and any place where God is at is a place that is holy and sacred. And so this man once a year would enter into this holy place where the presence of God was. Now, I suppose this is what we all do, but I I have often, as I've read that, imagined what it would be like once a year to be that one person to go on behalf of all the people to enter into the presence of God by yourself to make a sacrifice for sin. You're not there for a pleasant reason. You're there, and if you consider for a moment, this particular generation was a generation of incredible faithlessness. At times, as we read of their happenings, it almost makes you laugh at how faithless that they were. How can it be that God displays himself in such might and in such power? And yet it seems as though just days later, it doesn't seem as though, days later, that God demonstrated himself so uh, uh, by making so much provision for you, now you have completely forsaken him and decided to forsake your leaders and the, and the things that he has done and serve yourselves and go after other gods. This people were the faithless people, and yet this high priest was responsible once a year for going into this holy place on behalf of the people and offering a sacrifice for sin. I've been in services before where I felt the presence of God. What does that exactly mean? Well, every believer, the Bible teaches, has the Spirit of God dwelling within us. And there are times which God's Spirit will make Himself manifest or show Himself. And when that is the case, for anyone who is saved, there is a palpable sense within you that you can sense that there is some supernatural presence in this room. If you're lost this morning, no doubt you probably experienced the same thing. Perhaps the preaching of the gospel has taken place. Perhaps you're in a service and it's past the preaching of the gospel and there's music going on and there's, there's people that are testifying and you can palpably sense that there is a spirit in the room that is not discernible by the eyes but is making an impression and sensible by the heart. There is a heaviness If I was to express it myself, it's like a heaviness that comes in my heart. In part because I know I'm in the presence of divinity. Naturally, you would think, you know, it almost creates within me a a, a duality of feelings. On one hand, I feel this heaviness because I know I'm in the presence of holiness. 
And that holiness to my sinful flesh creates fear that I'm in the presence of God. And yet, by what we'll talk about here in just a few minutes, because of what Christ has done for me, I know that God has anointed me with a unique access to be in his presence without fear. And so at the same time, I feel this freedom, this love, this desire to faithfully do in that moment what might please the one who is stirring within me. And yet, the Bible teaches us that that, that, that part of it had not yet been revealed to these people. So he would come into the presence of this holy place where no doubt, no doubt he could sense the awesome presence of the mighty God. And he would offer, he would offer, he, he had to do it blindly. Because no one can look at the presence of God and live. And so what they would do in case he opened his eyes or in case some reason where God rejected this offering is they would tie to his foot or tie to his leg a, a rope. So that if by chance this man died, he could be pulled out of that holy place in the presence of God for another high priest to be anointed in that position. They would offer the blood of bulls and goats. And this scripture tells us that they would do this every single year. That once a year is when this would take place. Now, lest... We do what many have done and what these children of Israel for many centuries did all the way up to the time of Christ. Many people, just like we're going to conduct today with this Lord's Supper, they get caught up in the logistics and specifics of these actions and in, in, in how these things were carried out and what God delivered to them. And the focus becomes the rituals and the things men can say or the things might, men might do in order to please God. And yet what the Bible tells us is that this, oh, excuse me, that the things that were carried out here were incomplete, or in other words, there was a fault to them. They were not perfect. They were not rather sufficient to please God. None of those things that were ever done, God never established those things that they might ultimately please him. But rather what this scripture says and what the next chapter in chapter 10 says is that All of those things that were carried out were merely a shadow of something heavenly. Or in other words, God ordered that things be done in a certain way so that when people looked with their human eyes on those things carried out by human hands, that it would draw their minds to something that is not yet discernible by the eyes, but still as real that is being accomplished in heaven. What is he talking about here? You know, in the Old Covenant, it was under a a law that was due and you will live. If you obey and you do all of these things by which you can find life. And yet, what does the Bible teach us? That it's not by the works of the law is anybody justified. We learn earlier in the book of Hebrews... It says this, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. 
or finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You see, all of those rituals that were carried out. So I want you to think this morning, we can put in one box what I just described about the tabernacle and about the sacrifices and about the high priest. All of those things were a, a previous agreement that God had made. In addition to that agreement, there was another part to it. And that is, if you obey all the laws and the precepts which God has given, do these things and you will live. And yet, just as the blood of bulls and goats, just as that offering made by a, a, a carnal, a sinful high priest were in sufficient to take away sins, so also was the instruction that if we would obey the law, thereby we would find forgiveness by obedience. Because what do we know? That the fault, the, the, the insufficiency of doing that is that we're all sinners. We cannot do and thereby live. So God said, all of those things are just going to be like a picture you know, it's amazing. It's amazing. I think of Brother Brian back there that went to Alaska this year. I've been to Alaska. If you've never been, all the pictures in the world can be shown to you, but nothing can encompass being there. Nothing can. Pictures, you know, that's one of the things that me and my wife, we, we argue about. Probably, I don't want to say more than anything, but we argue about sometimes. We'll be somewhere doing something, and I'll just be in awe of something, or I'm so excited about something, and what will she do? Let's get a picture. And I'll say, no, it ruins the moment. I, I, I want the, the picture of my mind. I want the feelings, the smell, the taste, the touch. I want that to be the thing that is ingrained in my mind because a picture in my mind is so insufficient at depicting the experiential reality that I'm going through in that moment that I don't want that to be it. I want to live it. And by that, remember you know what God did? He said, I'm going to create some shadows and some pictures. And all of those pictures are going to represent something greater. And so recognize this morning that when you hear Jewish people today still trying to observe, still desiring to go build a temple in Jerusalem and reestablish sacrifices, that what they're clinging to is a picture when what God is offering is the reality. Here in Hebrews chapter 9, he tells us about this greater covenant that he has made. And that covenant is what we remember this morning. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 26, 28, when he was talking to his apostles, right as they were about to partake in this blood, he said, we're going to do this. And the shedding of my blood is to ratify a whole new way of worship, a whole new way of doing things, a superior or a better covenant that God has made with man that you and I can live with in freedom, worshiping him. Oh, the Bible tells us this, that we don't have to have some tabernacle whereby we worship God. Listen, I think it's a great thing that we have this building. This building is a historic building. When the tornadoes were coming through not too many weeks ago, there's a part of my mind that went back to, you know, my house is not that old. Perhaps your house is not that old. does not have the sentimental value. But this place is something that, uh, from a natural standpoint, many people treasure because of how far back it goes. And the beauty of this place might trigger some sentiment and excitement. Perhaps you can go back in your mind and point to location 
locations where people were saved and point to locations where you felt the presence of God and you saw him moving and working and yet still God has showed us that there is no physical location, there is no tabernacle, there is no temple, there is no church building, there is no cathedral as ornate and beautiful as you can make it whereby God calls us and instructs us to build in a certain fashion or carry out things in a certain way. No, when Jesus was talking to that Samaritan woman, he said, the day is coming where you shall not say worship on this mountain or worship in that place. For God is a spirit and he desires for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. We have a covenant now where there is not a location where we have to gather together and worship God. But since God's spirit has created us and made us the temple of the living God, we can be anywhere as long as we are together. And when we are worshiping him, we are just as free. We are just as right worshiping him there in spirit and in truth as if we were any place on the earth. What an awesome blessing. For our forefathers, who were not granted the same privilege that we are, they did not have safety. You know, we live in such a a time that is an anomaly to all periods of time all throughout history, where our forefathers, as the Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, they gathered in dens and caves as Jesus did. They had no place to lay their head. They were sought after. They were persecuted. They were harmed in every way. Very often they could not come together for large periods of time out of fear that people would come get them. But when they did get together, whether that was over in Nazi Germany up in somebody's home, whether that was in any place throughout all of time, God was willing to dwell and meet with his people there. What God wants People look for all these little tricks about worshiping God. People that are not religious, you know, they want to get all these hints. I was listening to something this week of this girl who supposedly gotten saved, and she was asking all these questions about, what do I do? And and I don't know anything about religions. I have no background. And I was listening to this man give her some explanations, and he was trying to encourage places and things and activities and actions that might cultivate a sense of religiosity. But none of those things will bring God's presence And manifest his presence with a person. Now what does God in this new covenant say? He says, I'm going to put my spirit inside of you. Anytime, anywhere, under any circumstances, you can sense the presence of God there. Oh, what a blessing. Oh, what a blessing. I remember when I was 19 years old, I went to Kenya. You all know Brother Bryson. He's not a planner, if you didn't know that. But Bryson told me he was going to Africa with me, and then I called him the day we were supposed to leave. He said, I don't know if I'm going or not. I said, what? I was 19 years old. I only met Tom Alande one time. Got on a plane, flew to Amsterdam, spent $20 making one phone call to Brother Bryson. Said, Brother Bryson, are you coming? No, I'm not. Okay. I guess I'm going to Kenya all by myself at 19 years old. Flew over there. Got off the plane, got taken to a couple places, went around a few different places, and I began to feel homesick because everything that I saw was nothing that I recognized. I was with a group of people that I couldn't understand their language. I was with all the things in the setting that I was at made me very uncomfortable, feeling very inhibited. And then I began to consider for a moment as I was on day two or day three, having already preached a couple times and feeling uncomfortable and stiff, I began to say, Lord, listen, I've got 10 or 12 days ahead of me. I don't want to go these full two weeks being uncomfortable. And listen to me this morning. Go 
God's presence met me in that hotel room and revealed to me, listen, I am here with you. No different than I was there with you back when you were in the States, in your own home, worshiping in your own church. And it gave me a great liberty going to those people and desire to worship with those people. God is not confined by time or space. As much as that might affect us, it doesn't affect him whatsoever. Why? Because we live under a new covenant. This is a new time. Listen, they would offer the blood of bulls and goats. You know, the equivalent of that today is doing what we're doing this morning. In a ritualistic sense, what people do to it. They think that there is something sacred and holy about the action of doing that. Now listen, I, don't, I want to balance here because I don't want to demean what we're doing. Christ has instructed us that we would do that. But his instruction to us in doing that is that it might direct our hearts and minds to the spiritual reality, not to the physical reality. And so there is nothing people get all caught up in. Should this be wine or should this be grape juice? And discussion after discussion goes on and on. And people argue and people study all these things. Listen, I think it's dishonoring to God to get so caught up in the substance and not get caught up in the reality. God wants us to remember in whether that, whatever part of the fruit of the vine that is, that we are remembering his blood that was sent to ratify this new way of worship. Oh, God forbid that I would cause doubt in somebody's mind by getting so obsessed with something comparatively, listen, comparatively so trivial. Compared to what? Compared to the substance. He said, we don't offer the blood of bulls and goats. We don't come up here. You know, it must have been to be a worshiper back then. A dirty business. A disgusting business. I mean... That, those places, if you really think about it, you go back and read Solomon and what he sacrificed at the dedication of the temple, the tens of thousands of animals. Imagine the blood that a priest would grow so accustomed to. The smell. Imagine the screams of those animals. Constantly crying out for help day after day. All of your body covered in blood from the sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. How it tells us here, the blood, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You recognize that those bloods, the blood of bulls and goats was never meant to take away sin. Ever. It never did take away sin. No, what did it do? It was a signpost. And it was saying one day, There's going to be a Savior that's going to come. In the same way that the law tells you you are deficient and unable to do and live. In the same sense, this sacrifice of a bull or a goat is insufficient to bring about forgiveness of sin. That is why every year you have to go through the same ritual. Because the last one was not effective to take away sin. Oh, but it was a signpost. One day, there's going to come a Savior into the world. And in chapter 10, it tells us that that Savior was not, he was given a body. Not commissioned to commit sacrifices, but rather he was given a body by which he could perform perfect obedience and then give the sacrifice of himself. So you're the high priest on that day and you walk into the Holy of Holies. No doubt the night before, you know, I remember the night before, or the night before that I first started pastoring here, I couldn't sleep. I was just nervous. You know, I don't know, I didn't know all of you very well, and, and uh, I was nervous. I was really nervous. 
last year's minister school with all the COVID weirdness and everybody having their own opinion. And the night before, I just couldn't sleep. I was really nervous. Imagine every year going into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. It's such a holy place that there's a thing tied to your leg. You might come out dead. You might be pulled out. Imagine how trembling you would walk in there to that holy place. You know, Jesus didn't go into the temple later. It was made into a temple and there was a veil between that and the Holy of Holies. God, Jesus did not walk into that temple and say, let me come in here and do that. No. What did the Bible tell us here? That Jesus did not offer the blood of bulls and goats in an earthly tabernacle. But he went into the heavenly with his own blood. And then I love what it says there, for us. Those high priests were commissioned, well, they were commissioned by God, but on behalf of the people. In the same sense, do you know what God did? He commissioned Jesus to come to this world and for 33 and a half years live a perfect life, never once in thought or deed ever violating God's will. He did it whereby we could have life. Then wicked men bound him and crucified him. He died, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the people. And he went into heaven one time. You know, there are, there, don't get me wrong. It is more advantageous for you and I to be human than angels. But there are some things that the angels saw that I kind of envy. How would you like after Jesus? I don't know if he did it right after he was crucified, after he was resurrected. I don't know. Right? Everybody can have their opinion on that. Maybe you can find some scriptures to back up. what, Whenever it was, can you imagine there before the presence of God, Jesus walking towards the throne, all the angels crying out his holiness. And there Jesus walks with his own blood to the throne room. And for the first time in history, offers a sacrifice and a blood, not according to a type, not in something that man built, not in some little tabernacle, and as as beautiful as the temple was to us, it is laughable compared to the beauties of that wonderful place where God dwells. And there Jesus enters into that holy place, into the holy of holies, and offers his own blood for the sacrifice of the people. And then it says this in chapter 10. And he took his seat next to the Father. You know, I love this. Whenever the high priest would go in there, he didn't have a right to live there. He didn't have any power or authority there. He was to come in and humble, give humble penance to God and say, here it is. Here's, here's the sacrifice, please. And I've heard people say that roll back the sins of the people for a year until the next year. And then it's all remembered again. And the people now imagine because in chapter 12 it says they would have the consciousness of sin year after year after year. 
That would have been one of the horrible things is as you're standing outside the tabernacle and it's the day of atonement and you're waiting for him to go in, you don't, you're conscious of all the things that you have done. That's why the, that, that's why that sacrifice is required. And you think back to all the sins the people has committed and no doubt you were hesitant and fearful. Will this holy, just God whom I heard at the Mount Sinai, I know his power. I saw the quaking. I saw the shining of Moses' faith. I saw him divide the Red Sea. Will that powerful God accept the sacrifice we have made despite our sins? And they would go in on that behalf. And year after year, that consciousness of sin would roll back. Look at how insufficient we are. Look at how sinful we are. But Jesus once entered in not to the pattern, not to the type, not to the little laughable place on earth but he entered himself into the holy of holies there before God and took his rightful seat next to him until his enemies be made his footstool and then God handed over all power and all authority on earth to Jesus Jesus entered into that place, that holy... What do we remember today? We remember this sacrifice that was done. Listen to this in chapter 10. Oh, I love, I love, I love the Bible is what I love. Verse 10, it says this. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. How he went there. And listen to me. The moment that Jesus said it is finished... Not one more drop of lambs or bullock's blood ever needs to be shed again. He did it once for all. Oh, he's not done. He repeats himself and says this. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. For this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for his sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God for henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You know why that's, you know why that's so good? Those people, they have the remembrance of sin all the time. Their consciousness of sin, they, in a sense, it was justifiable for them to live under guilt. Oh, but Jesus... He put away sins once for all time and has forever purified and sanctified, cleansed you to whereby we don't need to go. You know, you hear people today talk about losing their salvation. Listen, friend, if anything convinces me we don't have to, it would be the book of Hebrews in, in clearly showing that what Christ has done, he did once and has purified the heart and the soul of a person once forever. Never to give a sacrifice for sin ever again. We come today to remember the blemishless, perfect blood that is so far superior to that old covenant practices, to all the, the, the oceans of blood that were spilled before, can never come close to what you and I symbolize and remember this morning. You know that veil... I'll get to that and I'll be done. That veil is separated. 
It's separated. God. You know that, that uh, and I won't get all the pieces. There's one piece I'm forgetting, and I apologize for that. The Ten Commandments were in there to symbolize God's perfection. That's his character. He's perfect. Absolutely perfect. He is the embodiment of the law. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, I came and I fulfilled it. Every jot and tittle of it, I fulfilled it. That place was put in there to be a reflection of saying, God is perfect. Is everything perfectly. And it's within his nature. It's not on the outside, it's on the inside. There was a veil that was put there. You know when they made the temple, that veil grew. <clears throat> in my mind, here's what I think of when I think of a veil, because I think oftentimes what I used to, to imagine was like a curtain. Well, at home, my mom had curtains, and, and they were pretty flimsy in reality. And then one day it struck me that when I began to read about what that veil was to separate God and man, I realized it's not just some little piddly curtain. What came to my mind was when I was in high school, we had a stage, and we had these curtains that would come back, and, one, and, and they were really thick. And if you were, somebody was pulling that curtain, and you didn't know it, and it hit you, it would knock you off your feet. It was so thick that some of us guys would climb it all the way to the top of it and get to this little catwalk so it could hold our weight. And there were a few times where two or three of us was on it. And we were climbing this curtain to get to this this stairway up there. My point being this, it was a thick, durable curtain that separated God from man. On that day, on the hills of Golgotha, when Jesus was being crucified and he said it is finished, that big curtain which forever had separated God and and man from coming into his holy presence, all at once it rent, it tore from the top of it all the way to the bottom of it. And it just swung wide open. (laughs) And there behind it was now just a box. That wasn't holy anymore because there was no need for a priest to go back there. Why? Because our great and eternal high priest, not after the order of the Levites, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, walked into the gates of glory, whereby breaking down the wall of partition that separated God from man. And now, here's what it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, if I can find the exact verse. It says that we have access, listen to this, by having therefore brethren, bold, excuse me, I gotta back up here. It says this in verse 17. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So God has thrown away our sins and iniquities. Now where remission of sins there is, no more offering for sin. Or now we don't need to offer any more sins because God has forgiven us. Well, what's the, what's the effect of that? He says this, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with a pure water. Oh, I love this. You know what he's saying here? That veil has been torn, separating us. And you come to the holiest place where God dwells with 
boldness and freeness and talk to not just a box where God's presence dwells, but rather the the high and holy God himself where I can offer through faith anything I want before him. And he says, come and do it with boldness and freedom. Oh, you know, in your prayers today, go to God with freedom. Why? What would prevent you from doing that? Your sin? Good news. He took care of it. Once forever. Satan, one of his biggest tools is what? You want to go to the throne of grace, don't you? You know those times when you are just in the cesspool of distraction and sin and God has been the furthest thing from your mind and you have been mean to everybody and you have just been a sorry excuse for a Christian and there you are and just like that, that, that prodigal son, it comes to you and you say, what am I doing? I don't want to live here. Nobody likes me. I don't like me. Why would God like me? Why would I be able to be in his presence? And then Satan comes because he sees the attitude of your heart shifting towards God and he says, oh no, 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 no. And he resurrects the veil and he sets back up the tabernacle and he says only certain good holy people come here oh and what he's trying to do is say oh no Jesus tore down that tabernacle he tore down the temple he got rid of the blood of bulls and goats he took down that veil and he says come to me boldly for the only thing that can separate God and man Jesus Christ has taken care of once for all and now forever In this life, I can go into his presence. Listen, the implications of this truth is not just some old way of doing things. Listen, the implications of this truth can be revolutionizing to your life if you understand it. I can go boldly to the throne of grace. Dump everything inside of me out to him. I have a place there. You know, people talk about your praying place. We've all got one praying place. And it's the throne of grace. And I can go there and stay as long as I want. Or let me say this. As long as Jesus is alive, I can stay there. Well, guess what? He has the power of an endless life. I can go to the throne of grace and dwell there forever. And when Satan takes out that humongous dart called guilt for my sin, and he sticks me with it. I don't have to go find a bull or a goat. I don't have to raise a lamb. I can just point to Jesus. Who's taken away the sins of the world if people trust in him. Oh, I hate it when people trivialize the death of Christ by just saying, well, you can go get out of hell from it. Oh, you can do a lot more than that. Today, what are we, what are we doing? What are we doing this morning? In part... We're remembering that we celebrate a better covenant with a superior way of living. A sacrifice that is effective not for a moment, but forever. And in that, I mourn at what he suffered, but I rejoice in the new and living way whereby I get to worship. People have it all mixed around. I wish I could have been there at the Red Sea. I wish I could have been there for all these things in the Old Testament. Friends, don't wish for the shadow when you can embrace the person. You ask every military person stationed over in Afghanistan and Iraq whether a person would ever 
love to clasp the hands of their family and hug them tightly and love them. Or they just like to continue to see them on Skype and on FaceTime. Listen, they want the real thing. We have the real thing. I don't envy those people because I know this. There have been times in my life, you know, I remember just here not too long ago, about a year ago in our revival, I was down right here praying. Some of you saw it. You all were gone. You all were completely gone. You know who was there? Me and God. That was it. That was it. I want to go back there, don't you? I'm thankful I get to commemorate that today. Thankful I get to remember the blood of Jesus Christ and his offering for sin. And I'm thankful for what it did. Goodness gracious, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I can't imagine just waiting and hoping that it'll be sufficient. I'm thankful I get to know about him and feel his presence within me. Very rich scripture. I can't cover even, it's laughable what I try to cover from it, but I'm thankful that God has revealed it to us and that we can enjoy the benefits of it. Somebody might have something on their heart this morning, something you feel the Lord stirring in your heart of thanksgiving or anything at all today.